and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer for Dynasty Financial Partners. Today's special guest is Miguel Sosa. Miguel is a founding partner of Premier Global Advisors and RIA in Coral Gables, Florida. Prior to starting Premier, Miguel had a long career at Merrill Lynch where he spent more than 33 years. Prior to joining Merrill Lynch, Miguel was in the United States Air Force. He is a SEMA holder from the Wharton School and received his undergraduate degree from the University of Maryland. Miguel and I will speak today on the international space and the advisory movement for those types of clients. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, Chief Administrative Officer for Dynasty Financial Partners. And today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Miguel Sosa, founding partner of Premier Global Advisors, an RIA in Coral Gables, Florida. Uh, Miguel is a former member of the United States Air Force. He was a two-time Air Force commendation uh, winner of medals while during his time. And he has been a registered investment advisor uh, for five years. I think recently, maybe even today, was the fifth anniversary of Premier Global Advisors. So thank you very much, Miguel, for joining. Excited to have our conversation today. How are you doing? Great. It's a pleasure to be here, Austin. Great. I'm going to start with a a pretty basic question. You spent more than 30 years, I think 33 years and eight months to be exact, at a traditional financial institution. And then you decided to um, begin your career uh, as an independent financial advisor. Uh, Number one, how was that transition? And two, uh, talk to us a little bit about the decision-making process that you went through to move from a traditional financial institution into independence. Sure. So, um, yeah, it, it, um, back in, uh, July of, uh, 2015, um, there were certain decisions made at, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch that prompted my, um, my need to look for alternatives as far as servicing uh, my clients. And, um, uh, the process was one that was actually, uh, quite, uh, rushed, uh, in the sense that I had, uh, the need for a decision to be made fairly quickly. Um, but in that process, in those six months since I started uh, the, or the decision to leave uh, occurred, um, we explored uh, alternatives such as traditional moving to another large financial institution like uh, uh, UBS or Goldman or something like that. Uh, versus looking at an uh, independent broker-dealer versus completely going independent. And uh, at the time, I was 57 years old. Uh, I really had one more move left in my life, and I wanted to make it uh, the best move possible, first and foremost for my clients, and secondly for, um, for myself. And, uh, and so we started on the path of looking at what independent advisors uh, is all about, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's the avenue uh, that I chose for myself and for the firm. And frankly, it's worked out phenomenally well. Great. You talk about, and rightly so, the importance of finding the best option for your clients. And when we were preparing for today's conversation, we spent some time talking about your clients. And your earlier comments really focused on ensuring that the decision that you made, and rightly so, was focused on the best outcome uh, for them. And I know that you have a number of clients that are uh, would be categorized as offshore clients. So can you speak to um, how that particular client segment um, factored into your decision-making and some of the themes um, that you've kind of uncovered as you've become an independent and worked as an independent financial advisor? Yeah, th- thanks. The Yeah, the uniqueness of working with international clients um, uh, was a, a challenge in the transition process. And the reason uh, is that the services and platform and investment um, uh, uh, capabilities uh, had to fit them properly. Um, and that's not 
that that wasn't an easy thing to do. So anyway, long long story short, uh, I looked at uh, what was available out there uh, for them, and frankly, what I wanted to do was bridge what U.S. Uh, individuals uh, had had access to for so many years. Uh, this independent thinking of advisors that could choose from any platform, from any investment uh, capabilities, look at areas and investment opportunities outside of uh, the traditional realm. And so um, I felt that being independent gave my clients and uh, future clients that would be non-US accessibility to being able to have all the wonderful things that US clients have been enjoying for so many years. So. Um, the, the, the international clients have, you know, jurisdictional issues, meaning where they live and, uh, where they reside as well as sometimes multi-jurisdictional issues when it comes to their families, where they live, where they reside, where they study, where they travel, where they have their second homes. All those factors play a role in how you manage those investors and those, uh, uh portfolios. And so, uh, all that was taken into consideration in the process of the transition. And frankly, you know, uh, I haven't missed a beat in the independent world because we've actually been able to provide them not only with what we had before, but we've enhanced it by providing them with uh, in, uh, investments in such areas that alternative credit or hedge funds that are suitable and ideal for, for their circumstances. In addition to all those factors, I know, again, based on our preparation for today's call, there's also this concept that I guess foreign is, is the wrong terminology, but different and or unique for international clients around discretion versus non-discretion. So as you went through this process of talking to your clients about becoming discretionary clients of your firm, can you share a little insight into how those conversations went and what was their reaction to this new relationship with you as a financial advisor? Right. So from my, my years at Merrill Lynch, um, one of the things that I decided very early on in my career is to develop a business that was fee-based. So um, from 1988 on, uh, our uh, business was predominantly fee-based business. This is when nobody was doing it at Merrill Lynch. Uh, we, we, I decided, and, and my team at the time decided that that was the way to go. So we were already in, engaged with our clients in a manner that was uh, advisory um, for them, but non-discretionary. So you know, every transaction or every activity or, or anything we did uh, required their approval. The, the, the change that we did, uh, or in this process of changing to independence, um, what happened was that clients had already um, thought of us as having a degree of discretion. Not necessarily that we had the discretion, but they were, that they were delegating the decision-making towards us. So the formality of getting an approval was just that. It was a formality in the sense that, you know, by regu regulations and and restrictions, we had to get their approval, but there was never a recommendation that didn't get approved by a client because we were already acting in that capacity of, of an advisor. And so when I made the transition to a discretionary platform, it was very seamless in the sense that clients were already used to that relationship being one in which I was giving them advice and they were accepting the advice. As a matter of fact, I think it came as a relief for many, and I know I got much uh, feedback along these lines, where they would say, you know, this is great. It's even better than what we had before because now you're truly exercising your judgment without having to consult with us, and that's what we wanted all along. So being able to exercise discretion and advice at the same time was the, the perfect combination and one that made the transition easier and more seamless. You know, what's interesting is I think this can be extrapolated not just to, you know, international clients or your book of business, but just to the, the advisory community and candidly to human beings overall, which is inertia oftentimes is a hurdle. And I think we also at times underestimate 
um, particularly in financial services, how much our clients actually trust us. And so I think there's an element of demystification around the necessity for having non-discretionary transactional-based relationships with clients and put a finer point to that, non-discretionary transactional relationships with international or offshore clients. I mean, do you think that's true? Do you think that given the proper education that clients would prefer to be in an advisory discretionary format? Oh, absolutely. I think that the the uh, whole non-discretionary uh, solicitation type of relationship is a remnant of the past when that was probably the only option. Um, so, yes, I completely agree. I think that, you know, uh, sophisticated clients, clients that are um, up to date with things, that understand, that have been exposed to either family offices or uh, things of that nature are very predisposed to the concept of discretionary uh, portfolio management. Um, because I think at the foundation of the relationship is this level of trust and, and trust in understanding that the person or persons you're dealing with um, have not only uh, are trustworthy as human beings, but have the intellectual capabilities to make the right decisions. And so from the standpoint of um, how clients want to work with advisors, whether it be U.S. or non-U.S., I think it ultimately, you know, you have to base your decisions on trust. And so they they would rather have a relationship where the advisor is exercising their best judgment and then they are receiving periodic communications and reviews and updates on how things are going. And I think that that relationship works a lot better than a uh, continuous back and forth and back and forth of uh, solicitation of approvals. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the paradigm, you're moving from approval for a transaction that's specific to a product to a fee for advice. And within that, there's the element of trust. And I believe that trust can be bifurcated into two elements. When I mean bifurcated into elements, I mean the establishment of trust can be bifurcated into elements. One, it's the trust from the human or from the personal side. I like you. I trust you. But there's the second element in our business that's incredibly important, which is competency. Because I can like and trust someone but think they're an idiot. I mean, that's just, just the truth. But from a financial advisor perspective, to like someone and then also to trust in their competency as a professional, that's important. So how do you, within the space that you operate in, do both things necessary to establish trust? And then how do you articulate your competency or the things that you need to do in order to establish competency? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I to, to further your, your example, you know, I, I trust my doctor to give me medical advice. I don't trust my doctor to give me financial advice. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, so to your point, uh, most definitely. Um, so the, the way we establish trust here at Premia is to communicate a series of elements that build upon each other. So the first one, which I think uh, is the preeminent uh, uh, source of trust is uh, both competency and personal trust is just the fact that I've been in the business for over 35 years. So, um, you know, there's a certain benefit to survival, if you will, right. for, sure. <laughs> for, for competency. <laughs> so from that standpoint, you know, being uh, in the business, having led a successful team for many years at Merrill Lynch, um, going on to develop uh, a new business on my own and having it uh, become uh, successful, at least by my standards, uh, I think provides a certain degree of comfort to those that uh, are working with us. And then, you know, from there you, you take it further and you start to deliver on what you're, you said you would deliver. And from our standpoint, it's all about process. So we have what is called the Premier three, Global 360 uh, formula, which is in fact a process that we've developed over now many years to really create the environment by which we onboard a client from the minute that we get a referral 
to the minute that they become our client. And then we take it further by developing our other processes, which are the ones that engage, that allow us to create the portfolio. That's a whole set of processes. And another process by which we continuously um, review uh, the investments and the portfolio and our relationship with our clients. So by, by doing what you said you would do in a manner that is uh, consistent, that is professional, that is established, that is premeditated, I think that is at the, at the core of establishing that trusting relationship. What's important is being able to deliver on what you say you're going to deliver and to deliver on the expectations that that person has of what you, they think you're going to deliver. I mean, you know, for, I, I, you know, for many people in our industry, we think that uh, doing uh, quarterly reviews is this radical thing that, you know, we just invented. And at the end of the day, I think most people uh, expect that as a baseline element of the relationship. So, you know, the fact that you are, in fact, doing what they expect, and by the way, it, it starts right at the point of gaining that understanding and that agreement with the client. So it's, you know, it's that dialogue, that initial dialogue that sets the tone and stage for all future actions and conversations and activities because that's, you know, you're, you're understanding, you're grabbing those expectations, and then you're delivering on them in a manner that is, uh, that is what the client is expecting. Right. That, that's what you just said is an incredibly important discussion topic that I want to get a little bit deeper into. And it's of particular importance to new business owners or individuals that are new to the independent space, because oftentimes from personal experience, what I see happening is you move out of a captive financial institution. And so therefore, now you have what I would call close to ultimate flexibility around decision making. Obviously, there there's still going to be some stipulations that you have to follow. But because you have so much flexibility, there's the the chance that you could create a service model that's not scalable and that you could mismanage your client's expectations. So it's one thing, um, to your point, to like tilt to the bare minimum and provide quarterly performance reports, but the exact opposite and perhaps just as deep of a problem is if you don't set your client's expectations and you tell them that you can do everything and either you don't have the expertise or your team doesn't have the expertise or both, no one has the expertise or the time to be able to deliver on what you set from an expectation standpoint. So you have, as you said, 30 plus years of experience. How did you start to develop the Premier 360 process in order to be able to deliver a scalable experience for your clients? Yeah, so um, I think it, it's all about structure and, and like you say, scalability. Uh, in my case, for many, many years now, I've worked under the premise of being dispensable. So whatever I do, I want somebody else to know how I did it and why I did it and how it can be repeated. So the scalability of that is very important to me because I don't want anything um, to stand in the way of somebody doing what I do better or, or, or in the future. So getting back to, you know, developing the 360 formula, it was just basically going back and, and putting on paper the structure behind what most advisors do, but they do it hodgepodge, a little bit here, a little bit there. One day they do it this way, one day they do it that way. This way, you know, after so many years of experience in doing this, I said, okay, what, what are the things that we do that matter to the relationship and what are the things we do that don't, and frankly? And, uh, and you know, what's that, all that noise that we create in activity throughout the day that frankly doesn't add to anything, uh, whether it be professionally, personally, or in the relationship with our clients. So by filtering out all those things that are just superfluous to what we normally do, we came to the essence of the uh, things that matter, whether it be the conversation, the, the details that we gather at that conversation, how we handle that conversation, 
and then taking it further and, and developing then the process that, that actually, you know, somebody can walk in, an intern can walk in, we give them the binder that holds all the steps to the formula, to the 360 formula, and they can execute on it step by step by step by step. Now, granted, there's a certain degree of experience and, and intellectual capacity that one gains for many years, and that smooths out the process when you're dealing between two human beings. But at the end of the day, the execution of it, the step-by-step -step process, uh, is very repeatable. It's very standard. And uh, very infrequently do we fine-tune it because it seems to have worked for us for, for so many years. So, so in essence, what we did was just simply get the core of those things that we have been doing kind of, you know, uh, instinctively but not structurally, putting it together in a actual process and then making it, you know, capable for somebody that walks in the door to be able to execute it. That makes it repeatable, that makes it accessible, and that makes it something that can be scalable over time. Yeah. I want the listeners to try to really let what you just said sink in. And you said it maybe a minute or two ago, which is the process that you created was based on an acknowledgement that not only could you be, but there may be a desire to be dispensable. And that's a very difficult thing. First, as a human being, second, as a founder of a company. However, when you do at least accept that, and to your point, obviously, experience, relationships, I guess the magic of being a financial advisor doesn't go away by processes and procedures. But if you start a business where even from the top, there's an element of being dispensable, that to me would tend to lead a business to be more scalable. And that word scalable is thrown around all the time in different conversations of wealth management, candidly in any industry. But unless you have leadership that isn't looking to be the rainmaker, be the marketer, be the CFO, be everything, and accept that there should be an element of being dispensable and you get that way by creating processes that others can follow, to me, that's a really important point. So thanks for sharing, Miguel. That's really, really important. I'm going to change gears and I want to go um, with some of the recent news. Uh, Wells Fargo announced that they are uh, getting out of the international business. And I know that there's a lot of traffic uh, down in your area, the Miami area. So I want to get your initial thoughts as to you know larger financial institutions and why, even in, in your instance, why they're getting out of the international business. Is it because they don't understand it? Uh, what is it, Miguel? Yeah, I mean, uh, international business, when it comes to wealth management, uh, has been a, for many years, been a complementary component of a bigger business. So it wasn't necessarily um, a big chunk of the overall business. It was a complementary. It was a way that many firms could express their, um, their, their desire to have international exposure and global. So when the whole mantra of globalization was super popular, everybody was out there saying, well, you know, we're global because we have, you know, international wealth management and we deal with clients from all over the world and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and that's great. But the, uh, the issue was, okay, if we're going to do this, uh, we better do it right. And if we're going to do it right, we better make sure that we're complying with all uh, regulations, local and external, to make sure that we're doing what is supposed to be, you know, the, the right way of doing this business. Well, the complexities of doing that, you know, led a lot of firms to scale back, like in the case of Merrill Lynch, they scaled back the number of countries that they approved for um, new clients or, or existing clients. And then some other firms, frankly, just got out of the business, like Credit Suisse here in Miami. They, they got out of the international business. There's been consolidation by other uh, banks who have said that they're only going to deal with certain countries that, you know, and certain types of clients. And so you know, it's been a, more of a scaling back of who we deal with without really turning the key off on, on that business. In the case of uh, Wells Fargo, they, they just said, you know what, uh, 
we're out. And um, and so, you know, uh, we're going to pull back. Clients have till September to find another place to uh, house their investments and so on and, for, and so forth. And the advisors were taken completely by surprise. Uh, frankly, uh, having been through this process back in, you know, five years ago when I founded the firm, um, it's surprising that so many firms are still uh, dealing with international clients. And I think that by its very nature, uh, the, the development and the future of managing international client uh, portfolios is more suitable and, and, better, um, uh, and better situated to be done through uh, independent uh, registered investment advisors. Um, uh, you get to know your clients better. You manage uh, a book of business tighter. Uh, done right, it can be a wonderful way for international clients to gain access to many of the products and services that uh, they don't even know they have access to. And advisors in an independent platform can then provide their clients with a completely and true holistic level of advice by not having to be limited by one institution's uh, platform. So uh, overall, I think that um, uh, this is a process that's going to continue. I don't think it's the end with Wells Fargo. Uh, I think it's just going to continue, and I think it's going to continue downstream because uh, many of the Wells Fargo advisors I know are entertaining going to other broker-dealers and I think that that's uh, kind of the wrong way to go. I think they really should be looking at true independence. But, you know, true independence is not for everybody. And it takes a lot of uh, self-discipline and, and, and um, focus and attention and, and knowing, you know, what the essence of your business is to be able to manage it properly. Agreed. One of the, the common themes that pops up when financial institutions move out of the international business. And oh, by the way, before I get to that question, I enjoyed what you just laid out, which is disingenuous may be too strong of an adjective, but for firms to state that they are a global firm with an international footprint and a desire to focus on complex clients with complex issues, and then, you know, in rapid order from time to time to move out of that business and then place the clients that trusted their advisors and that institution with their assets in somewhat of a fire sale, having to make a decision very, very quickly. And that feels disingenuous. That feels like something that, you know, and I understand somewhat coming to my question though, oftentimes the theme behind this type of activity is around risk. You've been in the international space for a long period of time. One, why would a large institution see that there's an enhanced level of risk with these types of clients? And then two, you know, from a KYC perspective, do you think that that thought process is correct? Um, is there an additional amount of risk with these types of clients? Well, yeah, there's definitely a, a, an increased uh, level of risk with these types of clients. The problem is that the larger the institution, the more clients they have, they're going to manage to the lowest common denominator. So what's, well, what that means is that your, your, um, your decisions at these large firms is, A, how do I protect the integrity of the firm, its reputation, and its image? And the way I do that is by tightening up uh, all the procedures in such a way that if that every advisor, no matter how much experience, has to deal with a certain set of guidelines that can be very uh, cumbersome, restrictive, and frankly unfair to the clients that they deal with. So what what ends up happening is, you know, your your policies and procedures at these large firms are geared to the rookie advisor that just came on board that doesn't know what they need to ask or what or how to uh, 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 figure out whether that's a legitimate client for for the firm. So, you know, the guy that's been around for 25, 30 years who knows how to run the business has to follow a set of guidelines that are meant for somebody that just started yesterday with the firm. And, that, and the firm's doing that to protect itself on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's becoming, you know, it's handcuffs for everybody else uh, above that uh, level of, in, of, uh, of advisor. 
Um, I, I think that the, the, the way the business should be done uh, properly and KYC issues and AML issues that are uh, critical to that relationship, those are done much better by having uh, the proper procedures at an, uh, at an independent firm. Uh, because in my case, for example, I, I know these clients very, very, very well. And I've developed these relationships and I've maintained these relationships. And it's, it was the part of the essence of the decision that I, that I made to leave Merrill Lynch was I couldn't simply walk away from relationships that have been established for so many years and say, oh, gee, you know, uh, the firm decided we're going to kick you out. I know we had that conversation about I'm the go-to guy for your family in case something happens, but never mind that, uh, you're going to have to leave the firm. Wow, <laughs> not, in my, not in my lifetime was that going to happen to me. But um, so the, the getting back to, to handling this business for international clients, you know, it's, it, there's due diligence that needs to be done. Uh, when you get referred to somebody, you, you need to make sure that you're following the procedures that you have to evaluate and check that person. And they're clear. They're, they're not, you know, they're not cumbersome. They're not difficult to follow. But you need to make sure you follow them and, and you execute on them. And in my case, having relationships across the world allows me the ability to be able to cross um, cross-check situations and facts and understand things and, and just have the experience to know that, you know, some somebody in a particular industry may have a larger degree of risk than somebody in a different industry or, or what are the risks associated with a person that comes from a certain country, you know. So, so uh, there's a lot of things that go into being able to handle uh, international clients um, and, and it's important to make sure you follow the procedures to do so. Uh, and having an experienced individual like myself or a mentor to help you, I think makes a lot of sense. But the, the uniqueness of doing it through the inter independent platform with the discretionary portfolio capabilities that we're able to do it with, I think uh, is the best mechanism for these clients. Agreed. And I want to come back to a point that you made, which is a truth. And it's not a bad truth. It's It's just a truth, which is Traditional financial institutions have to create a set of policies and procedures that can be for the lowest common denominator to keep those institutions safe for the individuals that are just starting. And then the challenge, as you rightly pointed out, is, you know, for somebody that has 20 or 30, however many years experience, that that type of thinking obviously doesn't have a lot of malleability to it. So there isn't typically a lot of flexibility around policies and procedures. It's can be somewhat onerous for individuals that have experience to play by the same rules as someone that just came into the business. And so I think again, the independent space and being a business owner provides an incredible amount of flexibility around the types of services that you provide clients, and importantly, to be able to use your years of experience, your relationships and your knowledge to understand whether a person or an organization would be a good client for you. And for me, that would be something that if I was listening and I had international clients, I might think about that pretty deeply and say, look, if the trends are these businesses are getting out of this space and there's an opportunity perhaps to, to shift the paradigm and to be able to provide a different level of service and experience for my clients, is that something that I'm willing to explore? And obviously for the individuals within Wells Fargo, that's a decision that they have to make right now. They don't have very long. They have to move somewhere. But I agree with all of your points. One of the things that's interesting to me is just uh, around your value proposition, because again, due to the specific nature of your client base, some of the things that what I would call US centric advisors focus on, like financial planning, cash flow, or uh, wealth planning, may not apply to some of your clients because of all the reasons that you laid out multi jurisdictional perhaps not being subject to U.S. estate tax. So can you walk me through, and you started to a little bit around the Premier 360 approach, but 
Walk me through the premium value proposition and how it may be different than some of the other traditional RIAs with U.S.-centric businesses. Sure. So piggybacking off the fact that we are independent, uh, we have actually enhanced um, our, our, our value proposition. So in essence, our, our value proposition is uh, we bring innovative thinking, creative ideas, accessibility, and to evaluate choices to our clients, to our international clients. So this is, this is what they're looking for. I try to put myself in their shoes say, okay, if I'm a, a Colombian uh, resident, I'm thinking of opening an account in the United States, or I currently have a banking relationship, but I want to take it to a no, a, another level, a wealth management level, what, what are the things that I would very much want to have or gain in having this relationship? And I think that what they're looking for is to be able to have a trusted advisor, somebody that has experience, some, somebody that's been doing this business for very long or a long time, enough, enough to have the experience, that gives them accessibility to creating, that gives them ideas about how we can manage things better and continuously is evaluating how these ideas are affecting the management of the portfolio. Uh, that is in, in innovating all the time, looking at, okay, so what's new? What, how can we do this better, fresher, faster, quicker, more easily for our clients? Um, and then has the accessibility to being able to execute on that? Because that's, that, you know, I can have all those uh, intentions of creativity and innovation, but if I'm in a large firm, a Wells Fargo, a Merrill, a UBS, I can't execute on that because I'm being handcuffed all the time by the, uh, the powers that be by saying, well, you know, yeah, that's a great idea, but we're not going to do that here. Or, yeah, that would be a wonderful thing to have for your clients, but no, we don't have a relationship with that firm. You know, that's okay. So you're, you're trying to do the best we can for your clients in these institutions, but at the end of the day, you know, your, your inventory of choices uh, to execute is very, very limited. Um, and then, you know, obviously the ability to be able to define for the client or, or to identify and make rational uh, determinations and choices for them based on your experience and your knowledge of, you know, how products have worked over the years and so forth. So for Premia, you know, once we were given this new lease on life, so to speak, and the ability to then execute on the independent world, it was phenomenal. It was a, this great world that had just opened up for us. And then now we had to be disciplined. And then, then we have to execute on our process, create the process and execute on our process because now we really had the ability to develop really phenomenal tools and phenomenal choices for our clients. And that requires discipline. So from the standpoint of what we do in our value proposition, you know, I, I want our clients to, tell other people that are looking for a financial advisor, the reason you want to work with Premia is because these guys are up to date, they're super service oriented, they make sure that you're well taken care of, but their portfolios reflect truly their best thinking and they're always exploring ideas of how to make our money do work harder for us. And, and, and that's really at the essence of what I think uh, is our value proposition, is this trusting relationship through an experienced partner that has the intellectual capability to always be looking at ideas and innovation. I love that. And I think that can be extrapolated a little bit further, that, that concept of ideas and innovation. I mean, just as, as a business owner, which you are, you have the ability to look at the entire ecosystem within wealth management and understand whether or not there are ideas and innovations that would be helpful for you from a client deliverable perspective. And that can be something as simple as uh, a performance reporting system all the way down to, you know, technology that may make the client onboarding process easier from an electronic standpoint. And that's a big differentiator because technology is one of those things. Well, I mean, we all know this. This is a this is going to be a very obvious statement, but 
technology is increasing in terms of the speed in which change happens. You're moving very quickly from a basic element of technology, and then it's extrapolated and other people get involved and make it better and better. And so for me to be able to take advantage of new technologies that could make the end client experience better, you've just got more opportunity as a business owner within the independent space versus being an advisor within a captive institution. Captive institutions may have more buying power, that's true. They may be able to, because there may be a unified platform, be able to make changes that would have at least an integration feature that would be better from the onset. But over time, um, that integration goes away because you're able to figure it out. I guess my whole point to that statement is that if the client experience and if the utilization of technology is also part of your value proposition or something that you want to be part of your value proposition, then independence as a general concept and theme is going to be superior. And then for you and talking about all the things that you do for your clients, I mean, I agree with you, you have much more opportunity to continue to evolve what you do for them as an independent versus as someone that's in the captive institution being held to the lowest common denominator um, from a risk perspective. I have another question for you. When you think about, you know, the next five to 10 years, I'd like you to talk about Premia, but then also talk about the future of the international wealth management business. Where do you see your company? And then where do you also see the wealth management business for international clients going over the next five to 10 years? Uh, yeah, so so I'm going to flip that, uh, uh, the order, I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to do the industry and then uh, the firm. So from, from, a, from a view of where the industry is headed, I think that um, the, the, the sophistication, so the, the, the elements that we saw during the pandemic that we all have experienced is the fact that things that were evolving accelerated themselves in front of us over a very short period of time. We all know what they are. I don't need to regurgitate those. So what a similar set of circumstances is happening for the international client and the international wealth management business in the sense that a lot of the things that were probably going to evolve over time are going to be accelerated by virtue of the conditions and the circumstances that we're living in today. What are those? Well, you know, for one thing, everybody thought in my business uh, that you needed to be traveling all the time to meeting with these clients. Well, lo and behold, we're doing quite well and in many cases growing with this whole uh, stay-at-home Zoom type of uh, capabilities. Now, it doesn't 100% substitute for the relationship, the inter interhuman relationship that occurs when you're meeting with people face-to-face, -face, but it does create a, a large degree of practicality as to how the meetings are held and how those uh, interactions are held over time. So perhaps uh, a scenario that could develop is that, you know, we do the more formal reviewing with our clients uh, on a quarterly basis in a Zoom environment. It's very scheduled, very uh, structured. It's easily handled through a Zoom type environment. And then we take a couple of trips a year instead of four trips to do reviews. We take two trips a year to, to meet with our clients and make it more about them, make it more about a social interaction of getting together, of understanding, getting update on their lives and where they live and how they live and so forth. And so the evolution of the business, I think, will be one in which the, the role of remote um, contact management will play a greater role uh, when it comes to the interpersonal skill or interpersonal relationship with our clients. From a product standpoint, from a, from a uh, standpoint of delivering better tools, better investments, better success with the portfolio, I think that the independent world will probably be more of the way that I see clients uh, evolving over time because they want that degree of customization. They want that degree of personalization that with time, you're just not going to get with the larger firms. As, as we were saying before, this, this, this management to the lowest common denominator 
will force these larger firms into cookie cutter type solutions. And so the independent thinking and customization that we can generate for our clients today and evolve over the future is something that these firms will just kind of gonna, they're gonna fall behind and further behind and further behind and clients will eventually realize either by conversations with you know other friends and family members or simply the uh, evolution of the business, they're gonna see that they're falling behind relative to what they're capable of achieving or receiving as far as their services here in the United States. So I think that the, the, the evolution of the business will be different from the standpoint of how we inter, interreact or interdeal with our clients, both on a professional basis, meaning the, the reviews and the systematic um, items that we have to work with to manage portfolios and, and communicate that to our clients, whether it be an online customized report or just a, a, a Zoom meeting to discuss a particular idea or investment. Uh, those things will probably be done more efficiently through the environment that uh, we're using these days. And then, you know, the, the interpersonal skills, I think, will be more, much more fun, much more enjoyable, because you're gonna, the meetings aren't going to be when you sit down with people to do a full review and do uh, a nice chat about how they're doing. Now you're just going to engage them in a real human-to-human -human type interaction. Uh, and then uh, from portfolio management, you know, just the, the fact that they can gain access to a lot of different things that um, that uh, they don't have right now in many cases, I think will enhance their returns, will we'll match the risk posture of the portfolio better to uh, what their uh, needs are. And I think the, 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 the success of those uh, portfolios and the relationships will be much, much better. Those are the types of things that we're focusing in on Premia, and those are the types of things that we want to continue to do um, for the clients that we, you know, manage and for the clients that we are uh, looking to manage in the future. So, you know, our, our platform and what we do here at Premia is not to you know, work with everybody uh, out there. We have a select group of clients that we have that we are privileged to manage. We want to continue to grow clients in that profile uh, because I think that uh, they deserve to have access to the types of services and relationships that we have with our current clients. Yeah, I, I agree. When you made this statement around more effective utilization of technology, I, I see that in, in just about all businesses. That could be a silver lining from a pandemic perspective. It's just being able to utilize technology like Zoom or you know any of the other tools, whether it's Microsoft Teams or WebEx, to be able to have a very defined topic and have a much more business-oriented interaction with clients and prospects. And then, I love what you said, it should also allow the face-to-face -face meetings to be much more human in nature, to be able to, um, for lack of a better term, catch up and talk about what's going on in their lives and then use that information back into construction of portfolios, creation of plans, creation of uh, estate planning items. But I agree. I, I think that the pandemic, while it's been horrible and obviously impacted many people in a number of different ways from an industry perspective, has also perhaps changed the way in which we do business um, maybe up to, to 15 to 20% change in the way in which people should be interacting or potentially will be interacting with clients moving forward. I mean, I have really enjoyed our conversation, Miguel. Any last thoughts um, before we close out? No, I mean, uh, I'm going to make a, a shameless plug for my relationship with Dynasty, um, you know, reflecting on my uh, five years of, um, of doing what I've been doing and enjoying it tremendously. Um, you know, uh, I, I really feel like I have a, a, a true partner uh, with Dynasty and, and the work that you guys have done to, first and foremost, uh, the transition. I, I mean, um, Jason and, um, and, and some of the other team members at the time were incredible, phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it was just a, such a wonderful experience uh, filled with challenges, filled with things that we just didn't know. And I was I think at the time, the first um, true fully uh, international advisor that Dynasty um, uh, took on. 
And so, you know, there was a lot of, you know, learning going on at the, uh, at the time. So, you know, it was just great to, to see the support and the let's figure out attitude of making it happen as, 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 as quickly as possible. Um, and then the ongoing relationship I've maintained with Dynasty over the years um, has been phenomenal. Uh, I'm not the easiest guy in the world to deal with. Uh, I put my clients always uh, on the top of everything I do. Uh, I believe I'm an advocate for my clients, no matter what I'm doing, uh, whether it's investments, uh, dealing with a custodian or, or a product or investment or whatever it is, I, I am their advocate. I am doing what they would be doing and if, I, if they were in my shoes at the time. And so, you know, I, sometimes I push the limits of my relationship uh, pretty hard with Dynasty. And I have to say that, you know, undoubtedly over time, uh, Dynasty has really stepped up in a very elegant way in, in helping me uh, achieve what I've been uh, achieving. And, and I, uh, I, I really believe I have a true partner in my relationship with you guys. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for those words. I would state the same. I mean, the partnership that we have with Premier Global Advisors and, and with you, Miguel, has been a great one. And, you know, your patience as both firms have learned and tried to evolve the advice given to offshore international wealth management clients through uh, an RIA is something that, you know, I think we've, I'll speak for us, we've learned a lot and, and we appreciate your patience and you have always been, to your point, an incredibly strong advocate for the end client. And that's what's most important. You know, when there are challenges, we need to go to the mat for you and candidly for all of our clients, particularly when there are elements of the business that impact your clients, because that's your duty to them. And as a client of ours, it's our duty to you. So again, I appreciate you taking the time for anyone that's thinking about joining an RIA within uh, the Miami Coral Gables area. I know that Miguel is interested in those conversations. And so I appreciate your time again. And thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, to Miguel for his time and effort in this particular podcast. I want to say thank you to all our listeners. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode. And remember to be safe and wear a mask.